hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. I think that the most interesting space, and I'm slightly biased about it because I had such a great experience working on the Rafa magazine, but I personally think that brand magazines can be one of the much more potentially exciting spaces for the industry, because I think that the right brand with the right kind of storytelling, it just often makes so much sense. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm Patrick Mitchell. For the past 10 years or so, indie magazines have been booming. As digital media platforms relentlessly chase clicks and smartphones paralyze our focus, a host of fresh print publications are taking a slower and more measured approach. Guided by the tenets of the slow media movement, this new breed of publishers focuses on correcting the pace of media creation and consumption in the digital age. They advocate for alternative ways of making and using media that are more intentional, longer lasting, better written and designed, more ethical, all delivered in a tactile, bespoke package. In this episode, you're going to encounter magazine brands you've never heard of. Avant, Flaneur, Mondial, Monocle, and Port and one of the great success stories of the indie boom, Kinfolk. Born in Portland, Oregon in the early 20-teens with the tagline, A Guide for Small Gatherings, the magazine was often referred to dismissively as Martha Stewart for millennials. But in recent years, Kinfolk, like its millennial stands, has grown up. The mag moved its offices to Copenhagen. They created a clothing brand, licensed local editions in South Korea, China, Japan, and Russia, published a series of coffee table books, and, in the ultimate act of adulting, launched a magazine for, quote, people with kids. But one of the best moves they made was hiring today's guest, the incredibly talented British designer, Alex Hunting. Intentional or not, Hunting is a practitioner of slow design. His instinct for space allocation and pacing eliminates those outdated, overwhelming TLDR sections. His stunning magazine pages are subtle, spare, and expertly crafted. Perfect for indie magazines, which is good because that's pretty much all he does. We'll talk to Alex about why, at age 35, he's so bullish on print, why his university experience didn't go as planned, and how a pair of mentors literally changed his life. And if all of this bores you, well, there's plenty of talk about houseplants. Before we get into this, I have to ask, as a amateur horticulturist myself, I was reading an interview you did with Jeremy at Mag Culture, and I saw a photo of your studio from I don't know, five or six years ago. And there was a little jade plant on your desk. And I just want to know, how's that jade <laughs> plant doing now? Oh, I think I think that's toast. That's in uh, plant heaven somewhere. I used to try and have plants quite a bit in the studio. I used to try and liven it up a bit. But yeah, I actually went to a plant place to get maybe that one and another couple. And I just asked for what can't die. And they still do. I'm not green-fingered at all. So yeah, that's long <laughs> I mean, that is the number one plant you can't kill. But somehow you managed. When I uh, went to work at Oprah, I had a little apartment in New York and I bought a jade plant and it's spawned dozens of clippings for other people. And I have 
the main stalk of it here is about four foot tall tree now. Uh, wow. So before we get off the plants of it, the only plant that we, my girlfriend and I, we bought a cheese plant. Do you know about cheese plant? No. Do you know that? I don't know whether it's the same name, but sort of giant leaves, loves loads of natural light, but doesn't need much water. But they grow. Like we put it in our hallway when we bought our flat a few years ago. And it's in this communal hallway because it's got a big skylight. And uh, it's taken over the entire thing to the point where the residents are just complaining. But it's the only plant that we've never had die. So I just can't bear for us to get rid of it. And it's yeah. uh, it's a monster. Absolutely that's monster. Right. So that's the only... only yeah. <laughs> that's your first child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So you're 35 years old. You've got your own studio and a major world design center. And you're doing world-class work. Can we agree that you're an unqualified success? That's a really horrible worst question. <laughs> think about what you thought about back in school. What did you think you'd be doing by age 35? Oh, well, when I was in art college, there's no way I would have thought I would have, I was a disaster at college. But no, I am really happy with a lot of the work. I mean, you're always insecure about everything. I'm constantly having a crisis about whether I'm doing good enough quality work or whether I should be trying to do bigger work or growing the studio or keeping the studio smaller or blah, 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 back and forth all the time. But if I take a step back, yeah, I'm very, very happy. I've been very lucky with the projects that we've had over the years and they all lead to one another. So a huge amount of it is luck. But yeah, I'm pretty happy. In general. You went to the University of Arts London, is that right? That's right. Reading College of Communication. Yeah. It's considered the number two art and design school in the world. And just for those listening at home, number one is Royal College of Art, also in London. UAL is two. Parsons is number three. RISD is four. And MIT is five. Can you talk about what led you to the university coming out of high school? What were you thinking about uh, pursuing and how did you get into such a prestigious place? Yeah, sure. So I guess at school, I it's probably quite common with a lot of people that end up doing graphic design. I, personally, I, I couldn't have told you what graphic design was. I wanted to be an artist. You know, I wanted to be a fine artist that was into painting. I thought I was really good. And uh, I did my foundation course at Chelsea Art College, which is, again, part of University of the Arts. University of the Arts is made up of three or four colleges like St. Martin's, London College of Communication, London College of Fashion, Chelsea. So I did my foundation at Chelsea, which is quite renowned as a fine arts college. And it's amazing how life is coincidence because I asked my fine art teacher at high school, I want to be an artist, where should I go? And uh, he was an amazing guy, brilliant teacher, but bless him. I think he just basically told me his college that he'd gone to, which was not necessarily the best place. So I could have easily ended up somewhere else. But there was a really good painter in the year above me who was going to Chelsea and he was basically saying to me, you've got to go to University of the Arts or Slade or somewhere like that. So I went there, I applied and luckily I got onto the foundation course. And then I just realized pretty much the moment I got there that there was no way that I was cut out to be an artist. <laughs> I was surrounded by brilliant people that were actually amazing artists. And all I wanted to do is, I guess, sort of boring traditional painting which is what I've been doing I don't know what it's like in America but high school you start learning how to I don't know you're doing acrylics and then you do oil painting or you're doing whatever and you're sort of life drawing learning that stuff and then I got to Chelsea and it was proper fine art and the chooses were saying to me they turn that upside down and rip it up and that sort of thing so I was a bit lost really I didn't do a huge amount of work as a result and then got towards the end and the end of your foundation you've got to apply somewhere you've got to decide what to do 
and there was no way that I was going to do fine art. And I suddenly started panicking about thinking, oh, am I actually going to get a job with anything? And so I, I just got recommended by the cheaters, well, you should think about graphic design. And the course at LCC had a pathway, which was graphic design illustration. And that sounded like a good compromise for me because it's a bit arty, but also a bit designy. So I went on to that. But again, I was pretty terrible at college. I sort of floated around for a couple of years. I didn't achieve a huge amount and that sort of thing. And then it all turned around because I did a year in industry. I was really lucky that my college offer a year out between your second year and your final year. And I really did it because I just wanted to go abroad because you can do internships anywhere. And I really wanted to spend the summer abroad somewhere and I wasn't achieving much at college and panicking a bit. And I basically did a year of internships right bang in the middle of my degree. And it just totally changed everything for me, really. Like I suddenly got what graphic design was, suddenly understood what I should be doing, understood what I liked. And it just changed everything, really. Did you go abroad? For these I did. The whole plan was to be able to go abroad. So I had one lined up that I wanted to do because I was desperate to go to Barcelona for the summer. But I did a couple in London. I did one at a studio called This Is Real Art, which was run by an amazing designer, Paul Belford. And I mean, I basically was just phoning up. I went to an interview and I mean, my portfolio was just, looking back on it, it's just amazing. It was just appalling, the quality of stuff. And I just kept basically phoning up and eventually just relented and let me come in. And I had an amazing senior designer, a guy called Sam, who I was sat next to, who just basically held my hand for three months and gave me a bit of confidence, told me what I should be doing. And then my next one was with Jeremy Leslie. I think you must know quite well through the magazine world, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he used to do a magazine design conference called Colophon, which was in Luxembourg which is just like a massive indie magazine festival. And they were doing a book to celebrate the festival called We Make Magazines. And it's basically a massive book about all of the independent magazines that you could think of. And I wasn't really into editorial design particularly. I wasn't into anything, but I quite liked book design. And basically the internship was just to help design this book. And it was me and a guy called Lars, who was at my college as well, who were helping design it. And it just completely opened my eyes to this amazing, incredible world of independent mags. Bonkers, absolutely bonkers sort of stuff. So it was a real eye-opener. And I, from then forward, I was just really motivated. And it pushed me a lot in that direction, actually, towards editorial design. So I owe basically a huge amount to that year in industry. But in terms of this college education in general, I think because I was a bit lost, I didn't have the best experience. But I think, again, I think it might be different in the States, but I think arts education here is not in a particularly great state actually i think a lot of the people that i have that come an intern or come as juniors in college the amount of money they have to pay now and you don't even get a space of your own at college you don't even have a desk or something which i think was the one thing at art college you probably used to have right you used to pay your money and have a little bit where you could go in and work so i didn't necessarily have the best time at college but being in london was amazing and I think it's the people that you meet and the opportunities I think you get are so much more important in a way, or they were more important to me than all of the teaching and that sort of thing. I remember when Jeremy was doing that event, I was always desperate to go, but it never worked out. But that's the kind of thing that can really focus you on what you want to do with your life. And it sounds like such an intense weekend in such a specialized area really may have been the education you needed to guide you to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. And I think the passion that you were seeing from all of these different people doing 
insanely different subject matter, but all storytelling or image makers, all that sort of stuff, like incredibly diverse subjects and all brought together for one sort of party basically over the weekend. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So yeah, I owe Jeremy a lot for that. It was really, really eye-opening. And it really focused me so much to the point where, as I say, I hadn't been achieving much, hadn't been doing very well in my degree, all that sort of stuff. But I came back into the final year and I just I, I just got it really. Finally, understood graphic design. I'd learned a lot from the people in the industry and knew what I wanted to do more, the sort of studios that I was looking at, all that sort of thing. So yeah, it was all really from there. So it was very lucky that I wanted to go to Barcelona for the summer. In your college, did you get any education at all on the entrepreneur aspect of launching your own career? Do they teach you any of the skills to run your own business? I probably didn't go to it, to be honest with you. I'm sure that they do those things. There are probably those electives. There are probably those talks. There are probably those things. But I just was disillusioned with the whole thing. I was having a good time, but you know, I wasn't. Yeah. So I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. But I wasn't really thinking about that. You know, I certainly didn't think I'd be setting up my own business. I certainly didn't think I was going to run a studio or anything like that. It wouldn't remotely cross my mind. I'd enjoyed interning so much that I just thought, oh, you know, when I leave, I'd just go and try and get a job where someone worked there forever. It'll be best, best time. <laughs> It'll be a lovely time. I think most people would agree it takes balls to go out on your own, to get space, to get clients and all that. Did you grow up in a family with entrepreneurs? My dad has run his own business pretty much his entire career. And I think you do get a little bit of that. I mean, you see the bad stuff as well, I guess. You see times when you're flush and the times when you're not and that sort of thing. So I think there's a good work ethic from seeing that, being around that, which I think I have always had, obviously, apart from being in college. But once you're focused on your own thing. Was he passionate about what he did? Yeah. He always says to me that he fell into what he did because he was a little bit lost. He's a surveyor. He ran a chartered surveying business, but he really enjoys his job because he's out and about and he's meeting people and he's built a business. It's very social, employs lots of people and he's a good boss. So yeah, I think he definitely enjoys it. I don't think it's a passion in the way. I mean, I always forget and I think it's amazing how lucky whenever I think it's awful and work is hard. We are just like the very, very minority of people that are really passionate. That their, their hobby is almost their job. And that is a huge privilege to have. There's a lot of talented designers, but there's not a lot of designers who have whatever that missing trait is that allows them to have the confidence to just open their own place. And I've met some amazing people who have just failed miserably as our business falls apart around us who have been forced to go out and try to start their own business and they just can't function outside of a corporate structure. But you did and look at what you've done with yourself. So let me ask you, I know you worked a couple places before you launched your studio. But when you did, what were the challenges? Did you open your door with clients already in hand or did you have to start hitting the pavement looking for work? I was doing some freelancey sort of bits and pieces. I think like everyone, you start freelancing and then get to a point where it sort of naturally becomes like a business and you need help on projects. So it becomes a business. But what did I start with? So I was really lucky that I was doing some freelance work for the International New York Times, the opinion section. Before it was the International Herald Tribune, and then it became the International New York Times, and they were looking for a London-based freelance part-time art director. And that was amazing as an opportunity because it was only part-time, but I had some regular 
generating kind of income while I could do other projects. And obviously when you're starting out, your fees are so low for the projects that you want to do because you're in that constant struggle of wanting to do great work to try and attract more work. But you know, that great work you're getting just pays so poorly. So I was lucky in that sense that I had a bit of that buffer and that's gave me a bit of space to be able to start the business really. But I do think that editorial design is actually quite a good, it's like a good part of graphic design in a way to start a small business because by its very nature, it's regular work. So if you get a magazine contract, whether that's quarterly or monthly, biannual, or that's when you get those coming in, you can plan, you know that you've got X amount of work lined up. And obviously it depends how many of those contracts you've got, but as opposed to if you're just going out and trying to get, say, branding projects or that sort of thing, it's not necessarily as easy. So I've always thought editorial design is quite good like that. And I was quite lucky that relatively early on, I started freelancing. I was working with Matt Willie on a magazine called Avaunt. And then after that, the first bigger, great project that my studio started doing was we were doing Rafa's magazine, Monday Owl. And then quite soon after that, we started doing Kinfolk. And those were biannual or quarterly magazines. And so even that, as a start, you just know that there's X amount of money coming in. And off the back of that, it all grew from there, really going out and getting clients from there. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of Mag Culture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. When I look at your work, which is really just stunning, I find it fascinating that someone with your talent has somehow avoided working for the big brand name magazines. Have you ever been approached by the big publishers? Yeah, I have. I have actually, but not in the UK though, only in the US once. But it's happened twice, but it's your terrible, terrible visa system that you have. So basically, if you get offered one of these jobs, you have to get an O-1 visa, which means you're really good in your field and you're allowed to come over to the States. But if you have a girlfriend or a wife or anything like that, your wife is not allowed to work under that visa. So my girlfriend, who's got a very successful career of her own, they're not really uh, decisions that you can just make on your own, sadly. But it's never happened. I'm not sure how well I would do. I don't mean that I get bored, but I do lo- really like working on lots of different things. So like if the- Condé Nast or Hearst called you tomorrow with a great offer and no visa problems, with a job in the States, would that be tempting? What's the title? What's the Condé Nast title? Vanity Fair. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Vanity Fair or Wired or something like that. I'd be very, obviously, it'd be hugely, it'd be ridiculously flattering and it would never happen. But um, I'd definitely have to think about it. No, I was obsessed with the idea of working in New York and I loved New York. And every time I go there, I just always think, God, I'd love to live here and work here. You mentioned Matt Willey who people know from the New York Times Magazine and had some great success there, is now a partner at Pentagram in New York. What would you do if Pentagram called you tomorrow? Again, no visa issues with an invitation to join them as a partner in London or New York. Yeah, of course, of course. I always think it's such a designer's thing. It's the most flattering thing you could be asked to do in our industry, isn't it? Because it's a history and all the partners that have gone before I also love the idea that it's 
the, just all those individual teams. I love it. You build your own little pod. And I kind of love, I mean, I don't know what it's like on the inside, but I like the idea that it's quite dog eat dog. Like you've got to hold up your end of the bargain when you're sitting around the, the end of year meeting or whatever. And this Michael Beirut's brought in MasterCard or something. And you're like, oh shit. Well, <laughs> that is the thing. From what I understand, what separates the people who make it there from those who don't is that ability to not only bring in business, but handle the pressure of being responsible for bringing in business in addition to doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I bet. The whole business, it's a whole nother equation, isn't it? And it's the size of those brands, isn't it? Because you can run a very successful small agency where you're super hands-on and handle everything. But then when you start dealing with those huge clients, and I can't imagine what that's like, the pressure, the insane pressure. But yes, I would obviously, that'd be amazing. Amazing. I remember reading Vince Frost's book. I don't know if you read it, but he was like the youngest ever Pentagram partner. But I remember he pretty much, he didn't like it that much and he much preferred running his own thing. I'm sure there's lots of people that go into it who run their own thing who realize that they probably preferred it, but you just can't say no to it, can you? That's the thing. Yeah, it's really an interesting thought. Not that we're two people who, to this point, haven't had the invitation to go work at Pentagram yet. However, that said, I would say from your output, and I know from my job satisfaction, I don't need big, giant brands to make me proud of my work or feel successful. I'm just doing, as you look like you're doing, a lot of work that just makes you very happy. For sure. For sure. I guess you're still your own boss there though, aren't you? Which is the one thing that you hold on to, right? Like you're still, you are your own boss, even if you're a pentagram. Well, but then you have the collective air conditioning bill and the lighting bill and the plumbing bill and the employee <laughs> payroll and all that stuff. Yeah, true, true, true. All right, let me shift gears a little bit. You talked about Matt Willey and Jeremy Leslie, two noted important magazine designers and thinkers and makers. Along those lines, when I was at Fast Company, we used to talk about the value of having mentors. We used to call it your personal board of directors. Who's on your board? Who do you turn to for advice? I speak a lot with a pal of mine, Charlie, who I went to college with. He's a brilliant designer. He was a design director or motion director for design studios, design studio, like the big London branding agency. But anyway, at college, he was always just brilliant designer. We're super good friends. And I've always really, really trusted his opinion. And he doesn't work in editorial design at all, but he's just got really impeccable taste. So I speak to Charlie a lot about the stuff. I'm good mates with a guy called Kushar Swara. He's was the art director of Port. He's founded Port with Matt Willey. And uh, he's the creative director of The Telegraph now, which is one of our national newspapers. He's an amazing editorial designer. I speak a lot with him. And then I run a lot of stuff past my girlfriend, who again, not a designer, but she's a set designer. I do think it's super important to do that stuff, particularly because I do run my own thing and because I've been doing my own studio for quite a long time now. I did work for a couple of places, but it was only for a few years, really. So it is important to get outside of that, I think, to not think that you know it all or... Have to um, have all the answers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've got a few mates that I'm sure it's the same in the States. There's a little London sort of a bit of a editorial design scene. Like we go to, you know, Type Tuesdays, iMagazine do a lot of talks and there's a lot of things you go to and know quite a few people there. So there's a lot of magazine people chat to about things. I do think it's important. And the mentor thing was massive for me. As I said, you know, I owe Jeremy a huge amount for pointing me in that direction. Matt as well. I learned 
so much from Matt. I didn't even work with him for very long at all. I interned with his old studio, Studio 8, just after I'd graduated. And Matt was only there briefly because he was working at Frost. He was doing a kind of not sabbatical, but Vince had asked him if he wanted to be a creative director there for a bit. So he was only in the studio for a little bit. But we worked on a magazine called You Can Now, which was the magazine that the first studio I worked for published. And Matt did the initial design and then I did a couple of the subsequent issues. So I worked with him on it. And you just learn so much from seeing someone like that up close, just how they do layout after layout after layout after layout to get to something that's great. And particularly people that have got a lot of time and patience for you, which Matt always did. So yeah, I owe him a hell of a lot. I think it's really important, the mentor thing. Who's on your team at uh, your studio? Are you a solo act? At the moment, there's only me and two others, but they're pretty much always freelance. Like, not freelance, but it's normally like three month or six month contracts because we don't only do, obviously, I know we're mainly talking about magazines, but I do a fair bit of branding or digital design as well. So it depends on which projects are in and whether there's like web developer working on something for a couple of months as branding designer or a motion designer, that sort of stuff. I'd say the most people I've ever had was probably five at one point, but sometimes it's me between freelancers. Sometimes it's me on my own for a bit. So it sort of goes up and down, really. I've constantly been struggling with that. What constitutes success? When I first founded the business, I set out to think to myself, if I don't have 20 people working projects in the next few years, this isn't a successful business. And uh, I'm very much fallen away from that idea now. But it's constantly thinking about, are we doing the right work? Do we want to grow the studio? Does that mean we're doing better work? Or does that just mean we're doing more work? I don't know. I think it's a bit of a struggle, really. But everyone probably goes through that. What type of work to do to fund staff and whether you need a bigger space and all that stuff. I don't want to get too nitty gritty, but I do want to ask, say a new magazine comes in. What's your process for producing? So it's a brand new design. doesn't exist. You've got to create a redesign and launch an issue. Can you touch on the bullet point process that you go through to get a new magazine up and running? Initially, it's all tight. It's like type research, basically. And sometimes when something comes in, you can just see it in your head. You think, oh, it should be like that. And you think of references and all that sort of thing. I try not to look online, huge amount. I've got loads and loads of old archive mags and 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, all sorts of mags. But the process, I guess type pairings is the thing that I think about, which I guess everyone does. What's going to give it character? What's going to give it its identity? What are those elements? I'm thinking more in terms of working with the clients. Do you find that your portfolio helps you fly through the presentation process a little more easily than it might in a design studio? Do your relationships come in where you have an understanding that you're not going to have to go through round after round after round and show option after option after option of look and feel? Does it go that way or yeah, yeah. more organically and more fluidly? Most of the time, clients that approach us, they approach us because of something that we've done. And so you can pretty much gauge pretty confidently where something should be in its visual direction. We definitely do get stuff rejected. I tend to not show multiple routes, but sometimes if I'm not sure or if there's a couple of things we're working on that think is working well that we do. I used to be way more precious about when stuff got 
rejected because you're a millennial yeah probably yeah i just i'd have a bit of a tantrum or whatever to myself and think (laughs) but you know the reality is that i've totally grown to realize that ultimately you almost always end up with something that's better or like i find it because i challenge myself so much more after that's happened and also the client a lot of the time most of the time they are right because they know what they're trying they know the magazine might look cool to you but it might, it might not be the appropriate thing so i become much less precious about that sort of thing and i think it does end up leading to good work plus you can also leave all those little ideas in a drawer and come back to them for something else do you find yourself getting involved in editorial conceptualization in terms of like creating new departments or branding departments, naming things. Do you do all of that stuff too? Yeah. In terms of formats and that sort of thing, totally depends on the magazine. If we're doing something from scratch, we're often creating packages around how we can best show this sort of imagery and this would go well with this sort of shorter storytelling or this section's like bittier stuff or all that sort of thing if it's a magazine from scratch we tend to do a bit of that not lots of it but a lot of the clients that we have are normally really great and they're often asking they want to be they're really design conscious a lot of them they want the design to be as good as it can but they want the design to help inform how some of those editorial how a lot of those formats are going to be so yeah we do do a bit of it i'd like to do more of that we'll be right back Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. We're going to shift a little bit now. I want to talk about Kinfolk. You've worked a lot with the people at Kinfolk. How did that relationship begin? I got approached by Nathan Williams, who's the founder. He got in touch with me in... I think it's 2016, something like that. And he didn't actually get in touch with me about Kinfolk. So he's the founder of Kinfolk and Kinfolk was initially based in Portland and it was a massive US success story in the indie world. And they moved their headquarters to Copenhagen, Denmark. And it was a kind of slight repositioning the magazine and the company around being a bit more an international design audience as opposed to necessarily just like west coast slow living kind of vibe and they were going to start a new magazine alongside kinfolk which was an interiors mag and nathan had seen what i'd done with the rafa magazine which is funny because it's not particularly interiorsy but he'd obviously liked something in the design and he asked me to come over to denmark and meet him and have a chat about it and so i started working on the concept for this new magazine and um, loved it. It was really great, really got into the process. Anyway, I remember we were quite deep into it and he just sent me an email one day saying, yeah, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it, but would you be interested in redesigning Kinfo? So yeah, obviously I jumped at the chance to do it. And it's actually a shame that the mag didn't happen because it's one of those ones which I was so happy with the design, you know, the initial mag we were working on. And actually redesigning Kinfolk was a much more difficult challenge because of the baggage that comes with it, basically. So it started there and I did the initial redesign in 2016 and then redesigned it again in the beginning of last year, maybe, or just a bit before. And it's been an amazing, I guess it's been six years, really. And they're just 
the loveliest team, amazing editor, just a whole amazing team, the kindest, nicest people. I mean, actually out of every magazine I've been involved in anywhere, it's the most organized, slickest operation I've ever experienced. So yeah, it's like great. Nathan is no longer with Kinfolk, right? No, no, he left a couple of years ago. And so who owns it now? It's part owned by a Korean investor. It has Korean investors. I mean, Kinfolk is massive in Asia. So we still do a, a licensed Korean edition, Japanese edition, and we have a concept space in Seoul, South Korea. It's got a massive audience. There. The editorial team still in Copenhagen? Yeah, it's exactly the same in terms of the mag, all based out there. Although increasingly British, actually. The editor-in-chief is British. The editor is British and I'm British. The art director as well, Christian, he's Danish. And there's a in-house art director designer as well, Stefan, who's Finnish. So there is a Scandi element to it, but there's a lot of Brits involved. I think about Kinfolk as one of your name brand clients. And I guess it is a name brand, but it's a sign of the times that it's a global brand with a circulation of what, 80,000? Yet it is by mm. far, and I say by far, one of the great success stories to come out of the indie mag boom of the early 2000s. And you've worked for a few of these. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on indie magazines? I mean, Jeremy has this amazing little shop in London where he focuses on shining the light on the best of the indie magazines. But in the world of print publishing, indie magazines really are one of the positive lights. Most of the news coming out of our business is bad, but exciting things, good design, things like that are happening with indie mags. Is that something that is going to continue to grow? Yeah. I always find it amazing. I often get people, I had someone the other day apply for an internship and they, they were studying architecture, but they just really love the idea of working in magazines and can they come and intern? I was thinking, don't be a fool, <laughs> continue with the architecture. But it's amazing. I'm still of that generation of pre-mobile, pre-digital as well, just, just about. So magazines were a big thing for me growing up because there was I mean I think there still are the culturally significant things right it's where you get your subcultures like skateboarding magazines music magazines all that sort of stuff and I think they're still massively important in terms of defining that sort of I mean nothing's really has taken that place you obviously have digital websites and blogs and social accounts that are massive that basically operate as magazines. They are magazines, but it's amazing the kind of cachet that they still have, the printed stuff. There's a huge amount of dross in the independent magazine world as well, right? There's some total crap out there, but it's the luxurious element of it. The fact that some of them might only exist for one or two issues and disappear in a way, that's what makes a lot of it exciting, right? Because basically people do what they want. And sometimes they get picked up and lots of people read them. And a lot of the time people don't, but they still have a sort of a purpose, don't they? And I guess most of that was a reaction against the fact that the newsstands, just that whole world has just been falling apart. They tend to spend a lot of money on paper and printing. And it's funny because when you walk into a newsstand that has a lot of indie magazines, you would think that design is going to be a, a real big part of it. And I've tried to figure out what's really happening there because you open them up and the design suddenly isn't that great. There's a lot of white space. It's very mm. precious. It's small titles and centered text. They look like books. They've got nice photography, but there's no editorial design once you get past the cover. And, and I don't know if Monocle is considered an indie mag. I guess it's not from a big magazine publisher, but I, I tend to think of Kinfolk and Monocle as two success stories of magazines that started in, in non-traditional ways 
And also, ironically, both supported by Asian partners. Nikkei owns part mm. of Monocle, and as you said, a Korean company owns a big chunk of Kinfolk, or all of Kinfolk. I totally agree with the, the design thing. I think a lot of it is because in all those indie mags, there's so many editors. They've always been a space for writers, right? So, you know, the literary types, I just say there's a whole creative space of people desperate to start magazines, the art designers. I'm always amazed by that. Obviously, there's loads of magazines which they're just put together by people. So some of the content might actually be great, but it's not guided by a designer. I think that the most interesting space, and I'm slightly biased about it because I had such a great experience working on the Rafa magazine. But I personally think that the brand magazines can be one of the much more potentially exciting spaces for the industry. I really believe that because I think that the right brand with the right kind of storytelling, it just often makes so much sense because so much of the problems with newsstand magazines is like this advertiser, that advertiser, this person's got to be on the cover, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so much of that stuff goes out the window with the brand magazines because it's essentially just a marketing expense for the company. They can spend quite a lot of money on it. But if the brand's great and the brand's got good values and it's got amazing editors and amazing designers, I think lots of brands can see the value in it and it shows you it's still 100% has that. It's often the high point of a brand's editorial output, isn't it? It still is that physical thing. So I think that's a relatively exciting space still because there's often, with if it's like a particular kind of brand, so obviously with Rafa magazines, a cycling magazine, but I had a brilliant editor, amazing in-house art director in Jack Saunders, just an incredible creative mind to work on. And so the storytelling around cycling, was so exciting the sort of stories you would never see in a traditional cycling magazine but brought to life with amazing attention to detail in terms of the production the photography all this sort of stuff because the vision of the company is great and there's plenty of brands out there that you could see that could be an amazing thing you know and they wouldn't I mean, have the pressure like a purse launches a magazine well that means it's got to come out monthly and it's got to get a certain number of readers and a certain number of advertisers and become a business rafa can decide to do mm -hmm. a magazine because it's a great format for a certain thing and do six issues and call it a day and it's a success exactly exactly so yeah i love the indie magazine and i think it is brilliant and I guess that's why I'm still doing what I'm doing, really. As I say, it's from going to that independent magazine festival all those years ago. So yeah, I love it. And I'm still amazed. I keep thinking it's going to die down, really. But it's just constant, isn't it? New titles, new titles, new titles. I think it will die down because printing has just gone completely insane. The cost of printing is just this next level now. But then I guess digitally, there's always ways around it. I'm sure people will find a way to keep publishing stuff. Has your relationship with Kinfolk led to more work? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, people have approached me just because of working on that title. It's also led to some really nice, I've got a few Danish lifestyle -y clients, furniture or homeware, that sort of stuff. Stuff that's in that world and that's Copenhagen little bubble. So yeah, it's definitely led to stuff. And we've also done another mag with Kinfolk as well. I've worked on a couple of the books and all sorts of stuff like that. It's been a really fruitful relationship. So you get a lot of work from word of mouth. Do you do actual biz development to get new work or do you not need to do that? Yeah, I've definitely done it over the years. I think the hit ratio has got to be under 5% or something. I used to do these really big 
send outs where I'd send a fresh issue of every best thing we'd done to the marketing director or the so-and-so of loads of particularly niche companies really wanted to work for. I think once it worked, I think, and I try and get in front of people, like I do try and meet people, but I'd say the vast majority is word of mouth or not necessarily word of mouth. It's just you do a project, someone sees it, they like it, they want something like that, they get in touch. So do a bit. It's probably... 20% 20% new business, I guess 80% word of mouth. But often that means work dries up. Well, I can relate. It's almost impossible to be an effective business development person as the person who also has to do all the work that you get. That's definitely the job that I need, really, that I do need to hire. Much more kind of project management, new business type of job. I've been thinking that for so long. It's such the key part of the business. My dad used to always say that. He said, you should always be spending 25% of your time at least on generating new business. And what percentage do you spend? <laughs> Definitely not that. Definitely not. Two percent, <laughs> So you've accomplished a lot at the tender age of 35 and you're so busy. I imagine <laughs> it's going to be tough to answer this question, but how are you thinking about the, say the near future in terms of you, your business, your life, all of that stuff? Just keep plugging or do you have wider goals? Yeah, I don't know. I was saying to you earlier, yeah, I've just had a son where he's 18 months now. So that's been quite a sort of preoccupation where I've been keeping my head above water in general, just working, keeping the business going, trying to do good work and trying to spend time with him a bit and all that sort of stuff. So I think near future, it's just carry on as is really for a bit. I mean, I always say this, but I would like to grow it a bit I would like to grow the studio a bit in terms of I've had some great designers in recently and there's been some really great relationships with some of them and I've not been able to offer them a job at the end of their freelance contracts and I've wanted to and that sort of thing. So I've let quite a bit of talent actually like fall away, which has always been quite gutting. So I'd like to be in a position, do you know what I mean, to have a bit more of that. But apart from that, no, just try and do as much good work as possible, really. That's it. All right. We call this the million or billion dollar question. I guess it depends on how big your ambitions are. But uh, let's say Jeff Bezos called you today and said, Alex, I'm going to give you a blank check. The only stipulation is you have to use it to create and launch a print magazine. Money is no object. What would you make? Uh, um, cricket magazine? <laughs> no, I was thinking about that. I would love this to be a decent cricket magazine, but the imagery would just always be too, too, too rubbish. I'm a big cricket fan, so that would be good. But it's just, it's not a very, it's not a very image-based, image-led thing. I think, do you know, I thought about it. I have actually thought about magazines a lot because I've, I've always wanted to start my own magazine. So there's been a few ideas I've had over the years, but I think the magazines that I, besides kind of current affairs or news or that sort of thing, the magazines that I really enjoy are the ones that are very meta or like macro, how they like zoom in on something. Do you know the magazine Flaneur? Do you know that magazine? It focuses on one street like somewhere in the world and all of the content, the stories are based around this one street and the team go and live there. I just think it's amazing, the richness that comes out of it. And I love the colors for that sort of thing as well. So I've often thought what would be cool would be a magazine that each issue is dedicated to a 24-hour period, basically at any point in time. And Jeff Bezos could fund the best writers, the best tolfers, best artists, 
to find stories and bring stories to life for any 24-hour period, basically, like any period. But you wouldn't pick a famous year, it'd be like, I don't know, 2004, sort of June 3rd, 2004, whatever. I love the idea that you could find those incredible stories from like any time, but you need quite a lot of budget, I reckon. Quite a bit of research, resource. For more on Alex Hunting, visit his website, alexhunting.co.uk, or follow him on Instagram, at alexhunting1. And do yourself a favor, visit our website to see a rich portfolio of his incredible work. We have some exciting news. Print is Dead, Long Live Print has joined Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high-quality independent podcasting, including Iconography, a podcast about the iconic places, objects, and legends that define our culture from master storyteller Charles Gusty. Most recently, Charles has been telling listeners about the real New England locations that served as the inspiration for the fictional Amity Island in the classic Steven Spielberg film Jaws. Learn more at Iconography Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And learn more about Hub & Spoke at hubspokeaudio.org. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co slash shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Your contributions are the lifeblood of this podcast. Here's how you can support us in this work. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at Print is Dead Pod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>